Five. Broken Spears. If the stormlight in a gemstone is withdrawn quickly enough, a nearby spren can be sucked into the gemstone. This is caused by a similar effect to a pressure differential created by the sudden withdrawal of stormlight, though the science of the two phenomena are not identical. You will be left with a captured spren to be manipulated as you see fit. Electron Fabrial Mechanics, presented by Navani Colin to the Coalition of Monarchs, Eurothero, Yesavan, 1175. The Windrunners rose around Kaladin in a defensive spread. They hung in the air like no Skyle Eel ever could, motionless, equidistant. Below, refugees stopped, despite the chaos of the evacuation, to stare up through the awespring at the sentinels in blue. There was something natural about the way Windrunners swooped and banked, but it was another matter altogether to be confronted by the surreal sight of a squad of soldiers hanging in the sky as if on wires. The fog had mostly burned away, giving Kaladin a good view of the heavenly ones as they advanced in the distance. The enemy wore solid-colored battle garb, muted save for the occasional bright crimson. They wore robes that trailed behind them several feet, even in battle. Those would be impractical to walk in, but why walk when they could fly? They'd learned much about the fused from the herald Ash. Each of those heavenly ones was an ancient entity. Ordinary singers had been sacrificed, giving up their bodies and lives to host a fused soul. Each approaching enemy carried a long lance, and Kaladin envied the way they moved with the winds. They did it naturally, as if they hadn't merely claimed the sky as he had, but had instead been born to it. Their grace made him feel like a stone tossed briefly into the air. Three flights would mean fifty-four members. Would Leshwi be among them? He hoped she would, as they needed a rematch. He wasn't certain he'd be able to recognize her, as she'd died last time. He couldn't claim credit. Rock's daughter Cord had done the deed with a well-placed arrow from her shard bow. Three flights is small enough we don't need everyone, Kaladin called to the others. Squires beneath rank CP4, you drop to the ground and guard the civilians. Don't pick a fight with a fuse unless they come at you first. The rest of you, primary engagement protocol. The newer Windrunners dropped to the ship with obvious reluctance, but they were disciplined enough not to complain. Like all squires, including the more experienced ones he'd let remain in the air, these hadn't bonded their own spren and therefore relied on having a nearby full Windrunner knight for their powers. Kaladin had some three hundred Windrunners at this point, though only around fifty full knights. Almost all of the surviving original members of Bridge Four had bonded a spren by now, as had many of the second wave, those who had joined him soon after he had moved to Dalinar's camp. Even some of the third wave, those who had joined the Windrunners after moving to Eurothiru, had found a spren to bond. There, unfortunately, progress stopped. Kaladin had lines of men and women ready to advance and say the oaths, but there weren't willing honor spren to be found. At this point, there was only a single one he knew of who was willing, 
but didn't have a bond. But that was another problem for another time. Lopin and Dre moved up beside him, floating slowly, brilliant shard spears forming in their waiting hands. Kaladin reached overhead and seized his own spear as it formed from mist, then thrust it forward. His windrunners broke apart, flying out to meet the approaching heavenly ones. Kaladin waited. If Leshwi was among this force, she'd spot him. Ahead, the first of the heavenly ones met windrunners, proffering spears in challenge. Each gesture was an offer of one-on-one -on -one combat. His soldiers accepted, instead of ganging up on the enemy. The layman might have found that odd, but Kaladin had learned to use the ways of the Heavenly Ones and their ancient, some might say archaic, methods of fighting. The paired windrunners and fused broke off to engage in contests of skill. The resulting confrontation looked like two streams of water crashing into one another, then spraying to the sides. In moments, all of the windrunners were engaged, leaving behind a handful of fused. In small-scale skirmishes, the Heavenly Ones preferred to wait for opportunities to fight one-on-one -on -one, instead of doubling up on enemies. It wasn't always so. Kaladin had twice been forced to fight multiples at once. But the more Kaladin fought these creatures, the more he respected their ways. He hadn't expected to find honor among the enemy. As he scanned the unengaged fused, his eyes focused on one in particular. A tall femalin, with a stark red-black-and-white skin pattern, marbled like the turbulent mixing of three shades of paint. Though her features were different, the pattern seemed much the same. Plus, there was something about the way she held herself, and the way she wore her long crimson and black hair. She saw him and smiled, then held out her spear. Yes, this was Leshwi, a leader among the fused high enough that the others deferred to her, but not so high that she stayed behind during fights. A status similar to Kaladin's own. He held out his spear. She darted upward and Kaladin swooped to follow. As he did, an explosion of light expanded below. For a brief moment, Kaladin glimpsed Shadesmar, and he soared in a black sky marked by strange clouds flowing like a roadway. A wave of power surged through the battlefield, causing windrunners to burst alight. Delinar had fully opened a perpendicularity, becoming a reservoir of stormlight that would instantly renew any radiant who drew near. It was a powerful edge and one of the reasons they continued to risk bringing the bondsmith on missions. Stormlight raged inside Kaladin as he flew after Leshwi. She trailed white and red cloth behind her, slightly longer than the other's garments. It flowed in a swooping, fluid response to her actions as she turned and curved around, leveling her spear at Kaladin and diving toward him. Fully trained windrunners had several important advantages in these battles. They had much greater potential speed than the Heavenly Ones, and they had access to shard weapons. One might have thought these advantages insurmountable, but the Heavenly Ones were ancient, practiced, and cunning. They had trained for millennia with their powers, and they could fly forever without running out of void light. They only drained it to heal and, he'd heard, to perform the occasional rare lashing. 
and of course the fused had a singular terrible edge over Kaladin's people. They were immortal. Kill them, and they'd be reborn in the next Everstorm. They could afford a recklessness that Kaladin could not. As he and Leshwe clashed, spears slamming together, each grunting as they tried to slide their weapon around and stab the other, Kaladin was forced to pull away first. Leshwe's spear was lined with a silvery metal that resisted shardblade cuts. More importantly, it was set with a gemstone at its base. If the weapon struck Kaladin, that gemstone would suck away Kaladin's stormlight and render him unable to heal, a potentially deadly tool against a radiant, even one infused by Dalinar's perpendicularity. As soon as Kaladin broke away, Leshwe dove deeper, trailing fluttering cloth. He followed, lashing himself downward and plummeting through the battlefield. A beautiful chaos, each pair dancing their own individual contest. Leighton zipped past directly overhead, chasing a heavenly one dressed in gray-blue. Scar shot beneath Kaladin, nearly colliding with Kara as she scored a hit on her opponent. Orange singer blood sprayed in the air, individual drops splashing Kaladin on the forehead, other drops chasing him as he swooped toward the ground. Kara didn't have a blade yet. She would have said the third ideal by now, he was certain. If only she had a spren. Kaladin pulled up near the ground, skimming the stone by inches, orange blood raining down around him. Ahead, Leshwe dodged through a crowd of screaming refugees. Kaladin followed, darting between Levin the cobbler and his wife. Their horrified screams, however, made him slow. He couldn't risk colliding with bystanders. He flew up to the side, then pulled to a stop in the air, watching, anticipating. Nearby, Lopin skimmed past. You all right, Goncho? he called to Kaladin. I'm fine, Kaladin said. I can fight her if you want to breathe, eh? Leshwe emerged on the other side and Kaladin ignored Lopin, zipping after. He and Leshwe brushed the outer buildings of the town, rattling storm shutters. He discarded his spear and still appeared near his head as a ribbon of light. He controlled his general direction with lashings, using his hands, arms, and the contours of his body to govern fine motions. This much air rushing around him gave him the ability to sculpt his trajectory, almost as if he were swimming. He increased his speed with another lashing, but Leshwe dodged down through the crowds again. Her recklessness almost cost her as she buzzed a group under the protection of Godeki the Edge Dancer. He was a hair too slow, and his shard blade only sliced off the end of her trailing robes. She turned away from the people after that, though she stayed near the ground. The Heavenly One couldn't go as fast as a windrunner, and so she focused on sudden turns or weaving around obstacles, requiring Kaladin to moderate his speed and remain unable to press one of his strongest advantages. He followed, the chase thrilling him in part because of how well Leshwe flew. She turned again, this time coursing in close to the fourth bridge. She slowed as they skimmed along the side of the enormous vehicle, and she peered at the wooden construction keenly. She's intrigued by the airship, Kaladin thought, following. She likely wants to gather as much information about it as she can. In Yasna's interviews with the two heralds, who had lived thousands of years, it had come out that they too were amazed by this creation. As incredible as it seemed, modern artifabrians had discovered things that even the heralds hadn't known. 
Kaladin broke off the chase for a moment, instead soaring over the top of the large ship. He spotted Rock standing at the side of the vehicle with his son, delivering water to the refugees. When Rock saw Kaladin gesturing, the large horn-eater snatched a spear from a pile placed there and lashed it into the air. It shot up to Kaladin, who grabbed it, then lashed himself after Leshwi. He got on her tail again as she rose in a wild loop. She often tried to wear him down, leading him in intricate chases before coming in to fight at close quarters. Sill, flying beside Kaladin, eyed the spear Rock had thrown. Despite the wind rushing in his ears, Kaladin heard her dismissive sniff. Well, she couldn't be infused with stormlight. Trying to push it into her was like trying to fill an already brimming cup with more water. The next few turns strained Kaladin's abilities to their fullest as Leshwi dove and dodged through the battlefield. Most of the others were engaged directly in duels, fighting with spear or blade. Some led one another on chases, but none were as intricate as the weaving Kaladin was required to do. His focus narrowed. The other combatants became nothing more than obstacles in the air. His entire being, the fullness of his attention, fixated on chasing that figure ahead of him. The roaring air seemed to fade and Sill shot ahead of him, leaving a trail of light, a beacon for Kaladin to follow. Windspren darted from the sky and fell in beside him as he curved in a gut-wrenching turn, spinning as Leshwi arrowed between Scar and another fused. Kaladin followed, sliding directly through the space between the two spears, narrowly avoiding being stabbed, then lashed himself around to follow Leshwi. Sweating, he gritted his teeth against the force of the turn. Leshwi glanced back at him, then dove. She was going to make another pass at the fourth bridge. Now, Kaladin thought, pouring light into his weapon as he dove after Leshwi. It tried to pull out of his hand, but he held it back even as he thrust it forward. As Leshwi neared the ground, he finally let go of the spear, launching it toward her. She, unfortunately, glanced behind at just the right moment, allowing her to narrowly dodge the spear. It crashed to the ground, splintering, the head smashed up into the shaft. Recovering, Leshwi pulled upward in a stunning move, soaring past Kaladin, who, in the moment, lost concentration and nearly collided with the ground. He landed roughly, catching himself on the stone, hard enough that he'd have broken bones without stormlight, then cursed and looked upward. Leshwi disappeared into the fight, leaving him behind with an exultant, swirling maneuver in the sky. She seemed to revel in losing him when she could. Kaladin groaned, shaking his hand where he'd hit the ground. His stormlight healed the sprain in moments, but it still hurt in a phantom way, like the echoing of a loud noise in one's mind after it left one's ears. Syl appeared in the air before him in the shape of a young woman, hands on her hips. And don't you dare return, she shouted up at the departing fused. Or we'll, um, come up with a better insult than this one. She glanced at Kaladin. Right? You could have caught her, Kaladin said, if you'd been flying on your own without me. Without you, I'd be dumb as a rock. And without me, you'd fly like one. I think we're better off not worrying about what we could do without the other. She folded her arms. Besides, what would I do if I caught her? Glare at her? I need you for the stabby-stabby part. He grunted, climbing up to his feet. 
A moment later, a radiant with a white beard hovered down nearby. It was odd how much difference a small change in perspective could make. Taft had always seemed rumpled. Beard a little ragged, skin a little rough, mood a lot of both. But hovering in the sky, the glow of stormlight making his beard shine, he seemed divine, like a wise god from one of Rock's stories. Kaladin lad, Taft asked. You all right? Fine. You're sure? I'm fine. How's the battlefield? Mostly quick engagements, Taft said. No casualties so far, thank Kalek. They're more interested in inspecting the fourth bridge than they are in killing us, Kaladin said. Ah, that makes sense, Taft said. Shall we try to stop them? No. Navani's fabrials are hidden in the hold. A few flybys won't tell the enemy anything. Kaladin surveyed the town, then studied the battlefield in the air. Rapid clashes with the heavenly ones generally backing away quickly. They aren't committed to a full assault. They're testing our defenses and surveying the flying machine. Spread the word. Have our windrunners lead the enemy in chases. Have them fight defensively. Minimize our casualties. Teft saluted as another group of townspeople was led up into the ship. Rashon ushered them on, and the old blowhard looked concerned for the people under his care. Perhaps he'd been taking acting lessons with the light weavers. Atop the ship, Dalinar glowed with a near impenetrable light, though it wasn't the enormous pillar of radiance he'd created the first time he'd done this. Today's beacon was still powerful enough that it was difficult to look at directly. In the past, the Fused had focused their attacks on Dalinar. Today they buzzed the ship, but didn't try to strike at the bondsmith. They were afraid of him, for reasons nobody yet understood, and only committed to a full assault on him if they had overwhelming numbers and ground support. I'll pass the word, Taft told Kaladin but seemed hesitant about him. You sure you're well, lad? I'd be better if you'd stop asking. Right then, Teft shot into the sky. Kaladin dusted himself off, eyeing Sill. First Lopin, then Teft, acting like he was fragile. Had Sill told the others to keep watch over him, just because he was feeling a tad tired lately? Well, he didn't have time for that nonsense. A heavenly one was approaching, red clothing fluttering, spear proffered toward him. It wasn't Leshwe, but Kaladin was happy to accept the challenge. He needed to be up and flying again. The cultists froze, staring at Shalon through the eye holes in their hoods. The chasm fell silent, save for the noises of scuttling kremlings. Even the tall man with the sack didn't move, though that wasn't as surprising. He'd be waiting for her to take the lead. I'm not who you think I am, Shalon had said, implying she was going to make some startling revelation. Now she had to think of one. I'm really curious to see where this goes, Radiant thought at her. I am no simple tradeswoman, Shalon said. You obviously don't trust me yet, and I'm guessing you've seen the oddities about my lifestyle. You want an explanation, 
don't you? The two lead cultists glanced at one another. Of course, the woman said. Yes, you should not have tried to hide things from us. Remember Adolin, Radiant thought. Making a disturbance could be tactically dangerous. She told Pattern and Adolin, who might be watching by now, that if she was in distress, she'd create a distraction so they could attack. They'd try to take the cultists captive, but it could lose them the chance to capture Eole. Hopefully they'd see she wasn't in distress, but was instead prying information out of these people. Did you ever wonder why I disappear from the war camps sometimes? Shalon asked. And why I have far more money than I should? I have a second business, a hidden one. With the help of agents at Urethiru, I've been copying schematics the Kolin artifabrians have been developing. Schematics, the woman said. Like what? Surely you've heard news of the enormous flying platform that left Narak a few weeks ago. I have the plans. I know exactly how it was done. I've sold smaller Fabril schematics to Natan buyers, but nothing on this level. I've been searching for a buyer of enough means to purchase this secret. Selling military secrets, the male cultist said. To other kingdoms? That is treason, says the man wearing a silly hood and trying to depose the Colin monarchy, Vale thought. These people. It's only treason if you accept Dalinar's family as rightful rulers, Shalon said to him. I do not. But if we can truly help how Sadius assert itself, these secrets could be worth thousands of bromes. I would share them with Queen Sadius. We will take them to her, the woman said. Radiant affixed her with a calculated stare, level and calm. A leader's stare, one Shalon had sketched a dozen times over as she watched Dalinar interact with people. The stare of one in power who didn't need to say it. You will not take this from me, the stare said. If you want favor for having been involved in this revelation, you'll do it by assisting me, not by taking it for yourself. I'm certain that someday this might, the man began. Show me, the woman said, interrupting him. Hooked, Vale thought. Nice work, you two. I've got some of the plans in my satchel, Shalon said. We searched the satchel, the woman said, waving to a nearby cultist to produce the bag. There were no plans. You think I'd be foolish enough to leave them where they could be discovered? Shalon said, taking the satchel. She dug inside and covertly took a quick breath of light as she pulled out a small notebook. She flipped to a rear page, then took out a charcoal pencil. Before the others could crowd around, she breathed out carefully, snapping a light weaving in place. Fortunately, she'd been asked to help with the schematics. Shalon had real trouble creating a light weaving of something she hadn't previously drawn. By the time the lead cultists had positioned themselves to peer over her shoulder, she had the light weaving in place. 
As she carefully rubbed her charcoal across the page, it seemed to reveal a hidden schematic. Your turn, Shalon said, as Vale took over. You trace the schematic on a piece of paper above this one, Vale explained, and press very hard. That leaves an indentation in the page. A light brush of charcoal reveals it. This isn't the entire thing, naturally. I keep it as proof for potential buyers. Shalon felt a little stab of pride at the complicated illusion. It appeared exactly as she wanted it to, making a complicated series of lines and notations appear magically on the page as she did the rubbing. I can't make any sense of that, the man complained. The woman, however, leaned closer. Replace her sack, the woman said. We'll bring the matter to the queen. This might be interesting enough for her to grant an audience. Vale steeled herself as a cultist snatched away her notebook, probably to try applying charcoal to the other pages, which would, of course, do nothing. The tall man pulled the sack over her head, but as he did so, he leaned close. What now? He whispered to Vale. This feels like trouble. Don't break character, Red, she thought, bowing her head. She needed to get to Ile and discover if the woman really did have a spy in Dalinar's court. That meant taking a few risks. Red was the first one they'd embedded into the Sons of Honor, but his persona, that of a dark-eyed workman, hadn't been important enough to get any real access. Hopefully, together they could... Shouts rose nearby in the chasm. Veils spun, blinded by the sack. Storms alight. What was that? We've been followed, the male leader of the conspirators said. To arms. Those are Colin troops. Damnation, Vale thought. Radiant was right. Aderlin, seeing her sack replaced, had decided it was time to take this group captive and cut their losses. Kaladin traded blows with his enemy, landing one hit, then another. As he came back around, the Heavenly One thrust down with his lance. But Kaladin had drilled spear play until he could practically fight in his sleep. Hovering in the air, surging with stormlight, his body knew what to do and deflected the thrust. Kaladin made his own lunge, scoring another hit. As they danced, they rotated around one another. Much of Kaladin's formal training had been with spear and shield, intended for formation tactics. But he'd always loved the long spear, wielded two-handed. There was a power to it, a control. He could move the weapons so much more deftly this way. This heavenly one wasn't as good as Leshwi. Kaladin scored yet another slice along the enemy's arm. The shard spear did no physical damage, only graying the flesh around where the cut would have been. It soon healed but each healing came more slowly. The enemy's void light was running out. The enemy started humming one of the fused songs, gritting his teeth as he tried to spear Kaladin. They saw Kaladin as a challenge, a test. Leshwi always got to fight Kaladin first, but if he disengaged or defeated her, another was always waiting. A part of him wondered if this was why he was so tired lately. Even little skirmishes were a slog, never giving him a break. A deeper part of him knew that wasn't the reason at all. 
His enemy prepared to strike, and Kaladin reached with his offhand for one of his belt knives, then whipped it into the air. The fused overreacted and fumbled his defense. That let Kaladin score a spear hit along the thigh. Defeating a fused was a test in endurance. Cut them enough, and they slowed. Cut them more, and they stopped healing entirely. His opponent's humming grew louder, and Kaladin sensed the wounds weren't healing any longer. Time to go for the kill. He dodged a strike, then changed Syl into a hammer, which he swung down on the enemy's weapon, smashing it. The powerful blow threw the Heavenly One completely off balance. Kaladin dropped the hammer and thrust his hands forward. Syl was instantly a spear, steady in his grip. His aim was true, and he speared the enemy right through the arm. The fused grunted as Kaladin whipped the spear out by reflex, then spun it around and leveled it at the enemy's neck. The fused met his eyes, then licked his lips, waiting. The creature began to slowly drop from the sky, his light expended, his powers failing. Killing him does no good, Kaladin thought. He'll simply be reborn. Still, that was one fused out of combat for a few days at least. He's out anyway he thought as the creature's arm flopped down at his side, useless and dead from the shardspear cut. What good is another death? Kaladin lowered his spear, then gestured to the side. Go, he said. Some of them understood Alethi. The fused hummed a different tone, then raised his broken spear to Kaladin, holding it in his offhand. The heavenly one dropped the weapon toward the rocks below. The creature bowed his head to Kaladin, then drifted away. Now where had... A ribbon of red light streaked in from the side. Kaladin immediately lashed himself backward and spun, weapon out. He hadn't realized he'd been dedicating a part of his energy to watching for that red light. It darted away from him now that he'd noticed it. Kaladin tried to follow it with his eyes, but couldn't keep track of it as it maneuvered among the homes below. Kaladin breathed out. The fog was all but gone, letting him scan the entirety of Hearthstone, a little cluster of homes bleeding people toward the fourth bridge in a steady stream. The city lord's manor stood on the hilltop at the far edge of town, overlooking them all. It had once seemed so large and imposing to Kaladin. Did you see that light? he asked Syl. Yes, that was the fused from before. When she was a spear, her words came directly into his mind. My quick reaction scared it away, Kaladin said. Cal, a feminine voice called. Lynn came swooping in, wearing a brilliant blue Alethi uniform, stormlight puffing from her lips as she spoke. She wore her long dark hair in a tight braid and carried a functional, but ordinary, lance under her arm. You all right? I'm fine, he said. You sure, she said. You seem distracted. I don't want anyone stabbing you in the back. Now you care, he snapped. Of course I do, she said. Not wanting us to be more doesn't mean I stopped caring. He glanced at her, then had to turn away because he could see genuine concern in her face. Their relationship hadn't been right. He knew that as well as she did, and the pain he felt wasn't for the end of that. Not specifically. It was simply one more thing weighing him down. One more loss. I'm... Fine, he said, then glanced to the side as he felt the power from Dalinar end. Was something wrong? No, the time had merely passed. Dalinar generally didn't keep his perpendicularity open for entire battles, 
but instead used it periodically to recharge spheres and radiance. Holding it open was taxing for him. Run a message to the other windrunners in the air, Kaladin said to Lin. Tell them I spotted that new fused, the one I told them about earlier. He moved toward me as a ribbon of red light, like a windspren, but the wrong color. He can fly incredibly quickly and could strike at one of us up here. Will do, she said. If you're sure you don't need any help, Kaladin pointedly ignored that comment and dropped toward the ship. He wanted to make sure Dalinar was being watched in case the strange new fused came after him. Syl landed on his shoulder and rode downward with her hands primly on her knees. The others keep checking on me, Kaladin said to her, like I'm some delicate piece of glasswork ready to fall off the shelf at any moment and break. Is that your doing? What? That your team is considerate enough to watch out for one another? That would be your fault, I'd say. He landed on the deck of the ship, then turned his head and looked straight at her. I didn't say anything to them, she told him. I know how anxious the nightmares make you. It would be worse if I told anyone about them. Great. He hadn't liked the idea of her talking to the others, but at least it would have explained why everyone was acting so strangely. He crossed over to Dalinar, who was speaking with Rashon, who had come up from below. The town's neo-leaders keep prisoners in the manor's storm cellar, Bright Lord, Rashon was saying, pointing at his former dwelling. There are currently only two people there, but it would be a crime to abandon them. Agreed, Dalinar said. I'll send one of the edge dancers to free them. I will accompany them, Rashon said, with your permission. I know the layout of the building. Kaladin sniffed. Look at him, he whispered to Syl, acting like some hero now that Dalinar is around to impress. Syl reached up and flicked Kaladin on the ear, and he felt a surprisingly sharp pain, like a jolt of power. Hey, he said. Stop being a stumer. I'm not being a... What's a stumer? I don't know, Syl admitted. It's a word I heard Lyft using. Regardless, I'm pretty sure you're being one right now. Kaladin glanced at Rashon, who headed toward the manor with Gordeki. Fine, Kaladin said. He has maybe improved. A little. Rashon was the same petty light eyes he'd always been. But during this last year, Kaladin had seen another side to the former city lord. He seemed to legitimately care, as if realizing only now his responsibility. He'd still gotten Tien killed. For that, Kaladin didn't think he could ever forgive Rashon. At the same time, Kaladin didn't intend to forgive himself for that loss either. So at least Rashon was in good company. Rock and Dabid were helping the refugees, so Kaladin told them he'd seen the strange fused again. Rock nodded, understanding immediately. He waved to his older children, including Cord, who carried Amaram's old shard bow strapped to her back and wore the full set of shard plates she'd found in Amia. Together they moved in a not-so-subtle way over near Dalinar, keeping a watch on the sky for red lines of light. Kaladin glanced upward as one of the Heavenly Ones shot past, chased by Sigzil. That's Leshwi, Kaladin said, launching into the air.
Six. A loose thread. With a captured spren, you may begin designing a proper fabrile. It is a closely guarded secret of artifabrians that spren, when trapped, respond to different types of metals in different ways. A wire housing for the fabrile, called a cage, is essential to controlling the device. Lecture on Fabrile Mechanics presented by Navani Kolin to the Coalition of Monarchs, Eurothiru, Yesevan, 1175. Radiant backed up, the sack on her head. She pressed her fingers against the cool stone of the wall as the shouting continued. Yes, that was Adolin's voice. As she'd feared, he'd come to rescue her. Radiant considered pulling off the hood, summoning her shard blade, and demanding the conspirators surrender. However, she acknowledged what Vale and Shallan wanted. They needed to meet Ile face to face. A scraping sounded nearby. Radiant turned toward it, rock on rock, and some sort of mechanism turning? She strode blindly toward the sound. Bring me! she shouted. Don't leave me to them. Fine, Ulina said from somewhere nearby. You two, grab her. You, guard the doorway from inside. Try to jam the mechanism closed, quickly. Rough hands grabbed Radiant by the shoulders and pulled her along, steering her into what sounded, from the echoing footsteps, like a tunnel. Stone ground on stone behind them cutting off the noise of the skirmish in the chasm. At least she knew how the cultists were getting in and out of the chasms. Radiant stumbled and purposefully fell to her knees so she could put her hands on the ground. Smooth, cut rock, done with a shard blade, she suspected. The others forced her to her feet and pushed her up an incline. They didn't remove the sack, even when she protested that it wasn't necessary. Well. A tunnel made sense. This war camp had been occupied by Sadius and Iale for years before everyone else moved to Eurothiru. They would have wanted a secret escape route from their war camp, particularly during the early years on the plains when everyone, Aderlin said, had been so certain the princedoms would shatter apart and start fighting one another. The tunnel eventually reached another door, and this one opened into what sounded like a small room. A cellar, perhaps? Those weren't common on the Shattered Plains, too easy to flood, but the richer light eyes had them for chilling wine. The conspirators muttered to themselves about what to do. Four people. Judging by the sounds of rustling cloth, they were removing their robes. Probably had ordinary clothing underneath. Red wasn't here. He'd have squeezed her arm to let her know. So she was alone. The others eventually hauled her up some steps and then outside. She felt wind on her hands and warm sunlight on her skin. She pretended to be pliable and easy to move, though she waited, ready to attack, in case this was some kind of ruse and she was assaulted. They led her through the streets quickly, the hood still on. Shalon took over, as she had an incredible, likely supernatural, ability to sense and memorize direction. She mapped their path in her head. 
sneaky little Kremlings. They led her in a large double loop, ending at a location near where they'd emerged from the cellar. The hike up had taken only a few minutes, so they had to be near the eastern edge of the war camp, perhaps the fortress there? That would put her near the old Sadius lumberyards, where Kaladin had spent months building Bridge Four from the broken remnants of the men delivered there to die. She wondered if anyone in the area had found it odd that they were leading around a woman with a sack on her head. Judging by how upset they seemed, as they finally pulled her into a building, they weren't thinking very clearly. They forced her down into a chair, then left, boots thumping on wood. She soon heard them arguing in a nearby room. Carefully, Vale reached up and removed her hood. The cultist left guarding her, a tall man with a scar on his chin, didn't demand she replace it. She was sitting in a stiff wooden chair right inside the door of a stone room with a large circular rug. The rug didn't do much to liven the otherwise bare chamber. These war camp buildings were so fortress-like, few windows, little ornamentation. Shalan had always viewed Sadius as a blowhard, a fortress like this, and the escape tunnel she'd traveled through made Vale revise that assessment. She sifted through Shalon's memories, and what Vale saw in the man was pure craftiness. Shalon didn't have many memories of Ile, but Vale knew enough to be careful. High Prince Thanadal had started this new kingdom at the war camps, but soon after Ile had set up here, Thanadal had been found dead, supposedly knifed by a prostitute. Vama, the other high prince who hadn't supported Dalinar had fled the war camps in the night. He seemed to believe Ile's lie that Dalinar had ordered the assassination. That left Ile Sadius the one true remaining power here in the war camps. She had an army, had co-opted the Sons of Honor, and was demanding tariffs from arriving trade caravans. This woman remained a thorn, a reminder of the old Alethkar, full of squabbling light eyes, always eyeing one another's lands. Vale listened as best she could to the arguments coming from the next room. The conspirators seemed frustrated that they'd lost so many in the strike. They seemed frantic and worried that it was all falling apart. At last, the door swung open and three people stormed out. Vale recognized Ulina, the woman she'd suspected earlier from her voice. They were followed by a light-eyed soldier in Sadius colors. The guard gestured for Vale to enter, so she rose and carefully poked her head into the room. It was larger than the antechamber, with very narrow windows. Despite the attempt to soften it with a rug, couches, and pillows, it still felt like a fortress a place for light eyes to hole up in during storms or to fall back to if attacked. Ela Sadius sat at a table on the far side of the room, shrouded in shadows, away from the windows and the glowing sphere lamps on the walls. Near to her sat a large hutch with a roll top covering its front. All right, Vale thought, walking forward. We've found her, 
Have we decided what we're going to do with her? She knew Radiant's vote. Get her to say something incriminating, then bring her in. Vale, however, hadn't pushed this mission solely to gather evidence for Dalinar. She hadn't even done it because the ghost bloods saw ELA as a threat. Vale had done it because this woman stubbornly continued to jeopardize everything Shalon loved. Dalinar and Yasna needed to keep their eyes on the real prize, reclaiming Alethkar. And so, Vale had determined to snip this particular loose thread. Adolin had killed High Prince Sadius in a moment of honest passion. Vale had come to finish the job he'd begun. Today, Vale intended to assassinate Elay Sadius. The hardest thing in the world for Kaladin to do was nothing. It was excruciating to watch one of his soldiers fight for his life against a skilled, dangerous opponent and do nothing to help. Leshwe was a being of incredible age, the spirit of a singer long dead turned into something more akin to a spren, a force of nature. Sigzil was a capable fighter, but far from the Order's best. His true talents lay in his understanding of numbers, his knowledge of other cultures, and his ability to remain focused and practical in situations where others lost their heads. He was quickly forced onto the defensive. Leshwe loomed over him, thrusting down with her spear, then swung around and stabbed from the side. She expertly flowed from one attack to the next, forcing Sigzil to keep spinning around, barely deflecting or dodging her strikes. Kaladin lashed himself forward, fingers tight on his spear. It was vital his team keep to the Heavenly One's sense of honor. So long as the enemy agreed to one-on-one -on -one combat, his soldiers were never in danger of being overwhelmed and wiped out. The forces on the ground might mercilessly brutalize one another, but up here, in the skies, they'd found mutual respect. The respect of combatants who would kill one another, but as part of a contest— not a slaughter. Break that unspoken rule, gang up on Leshwe now, and that precarious balance would end. Leshwe shot forward and speared Sigzil in the chest. Her weapon impaled him straight through, bursting from the back of his blue uniform, slick with blood. He struggled, gasping, stormlight leaking from his mouth. Leshwe hummed a loud tone, and the gemstone on her spear began to glow, sucking stormlight from her prey. Kaladin groaned the deaths of so many he'd failed flashing before him. Tien? Nalma? Elokar? He was again in that terrible nightmare at the Kolinar Palace, where his friends killed one another. Screams and lights and pain and blood all swirled around one image. A man Kaladin was sworn to protect, lying on the floor. Moash's spear straight through him. No! Kaladin shouted. He couldn't simply watch. He couldn't. He lashed himself forward, but Leshwe met his eyes. He paused. She yanked her spear from Sigzel's chest right before his stormlight went out. Sigzel sagged in the air and Kaladin grabbed him, holding him as he blinked in a daze, clutching his silvery shard spear. Drop your weapon, Kaladin said to him, and bow to her. What? Sir? Sigzel frowned as his wound healed. Drop your spear, Kaladin said, and bow to her. Sigzil, looking confused, did as he requested. Leshwe nodded to him in turn. 
Go back to the ship, Kaladin said, and sit out the rest of this battle. Stay with the squires. Um, yes, sir, Sigzil said. He floated off, poking at the bloody hole in his jacket. Leshwe glanced to the side. A short distance away, hanging in the air with no weapon, was the heavenly one that Kaladin had defeated earlier. Leshwe shouldn't care that Kaladin had spared the creature. It had been a foolish gesture toward a being who could be reborn with each new storm. Then again, Leshwe probably knew that if Sigzil were killed, a new Radiant could be raised up using his spren. It wasn't exactly the same. In fact, in terms of Kaladin's relief, there was a huge difference. At any rate, as Leshwe raised her spear to him, he was glad to accept the challenge. In the middle deck of the fourth bridge, Navani counted off another family and pointed them toward a clearly marked and numbered section of the hold. The ardents there were quick to provide comfort to the worried family. Wide-eyed children clutching blankets settled in, several of them sniffling. Parents arranged sacks with the clothing and other possessions they'd hastily packed. Some few are refusing to leave, ardent Falalar said quietly to Navani. He fretted at his pure white beard as he looked over the list of names. They'd rather continue living in oppression than abandon their homeland. How many? she asked. Not many. Fifteen people. Otherwise, the evacuation is going faster than I'd estimated. The refugees, obviously, were already prepared to move, and most of the normal townspeople had already been forced into close quarters with their neighbors to give Parshman their dwellings. Then what are you so worried about? Navani asked, making a notation on her list. Nearby, Renarin had stepped up to the family with the sniffling children. He summoned a small globe of light, then began bouncing it between his hands. Such a simple thing, but the children who saw it grew wide-eyed, forgetting their fear. The ball of light was bright blue. Part of Navani felt it should be red to reveal the true nature of the spren that hid inside Renarin. Avoid spren or at least an ordinary spren corrupted to the enemy's side. None of them knew what to do about that fact, least of all Renarin. As with most Radiants, he hadn't known what he was doing when he began. Now that he'd formed the bond, it was too late to turn back. Renarin claimed the spren was trustworthy, but something was odd about his powers. They'd managed to recruit several standard truth watchers, and they could create illusions, like Shalon. Renarin couldn't do that. He could only summon lights, and they did strange, unnatural things sometimes. So many things could still go wrong, Falalar said, drawing Navani's attention back to the moment. What if we underestimated the weight this many people will add? What if the strain cracks gemstones faster than we'd planned? The fans barely worked at all. It's not a disaster, Brightness. But there's so much to worry about. He tugged at his beard again. It was a wonder he had any hairs left at this point. Navani patted his arm fondly. If Falalar didn't have something to worry about, he'd go mad. 
Do a visual inspection of the gemstones. Then double-check your calculations. Triple-check, you mean, he said. Yes, I suppose. Keep myself busy. Stop worrying. He reached for his beard, then pointedly shoved his hand in the pocket of his ardent robes. Navani passed her checklist to another ardent, then climbed the steps to the top deck. Dalinar said he'd reopened the perpendicularity soon, and she wanted to be there, her pencil poised, when he did. Down below, the townspeople kept clustering and looking up at the strange battle overhead. All this gawking was really going to throw off the orderly boarding plan she'd commissioned. Next time, she'd have the Ardents draw up a second plan that indicated how long it might take if a battle were occurring. Well, at least only the Heavenly Ones were here. They tended to ignore civilians, considering them little more than battlefield obstacles. Other groups of fused were far more... brutal. The command station was mostly empty now, all of her ardents having been recruited to comfort and guide the boarding townspeople. Only Rushu remained, absently watching the flying wind runners with her notebook open. Bother. The pretty young ardent was supposed to be cataloguing the town's food supplies. Rushu was brilliant, but like a sphere, she tended to shine in all directions unless carefully focused. Brightness, Rushu said as Navani walked up. Did you see that? The fused over there, the one now fighting High Marshal Kaladin? She let one of the Windrunners go after stabbing him. I'm sure she was merely distracted by Kaladin's arrival, Navani said, glancing toward Dalinar, who stood directly ahead. The large horn-eater bridgeman had taken a position near Dalinar, and was looking over some sacks of supplies that Rushu had apparently forgotten about. Navani didn't miss that his daughter, the shard-bearer, was standing very close as well. Kaladin had been promoted beyond being a simple bodyguard, but he did tend to keep an eye out for Dalinar regardless. Almighty bless him for it. Brightness, Rushu said. I swear there is something odd about this battle. Too many of the Windrunners are idling about, not fighting. Reserves, Rushu, Navani said. Come, let my husband worry about tactics. We have another duty. Rushu sighed, but did as asked, tucking her notebook under her arm and accompanying Navani. Dalinar stood with his hands clasped behind his back, watching the fighting. As Navani had hoped, he relaxed his posture, then brought his hands to the sides, as if gripping some unseen fabric. He pulled his hands together, and the perpendicularity opened as a burst of light. Glory spren, like golden spheres, began to spiral around him. Navani got a better glimpse of Shadesmar this time. And again, she heard that tone. That was new, wasn't it? Though she didn't consider herself talented at drawing, at least not compared to a master like Shalon, she sketched what she saw, trying to capture an image of that place with the strange sun over a sea of beads. She could visit it in person if she wished, using the oath gates, but something felt different about these visions. 
What did you see? she asked Rushu. I didn't see anything, Brightness, Rushu said. But I felt something, like a pulse, a powerful thump. For a moment I felt as if I were falling into eternity. Write that down, Navani said. Capture it. Very well, Rushu said, opening her notebook again. She glanced up as Kaladin skimmed the deck overhead, dangerously close, following one of the fused. Focus, Rushu, Navani said. If you wish depictions or descriptions of Shadesmar, Rushu said, Queen Yasna has released journals of her travels there. I'm well aware, Navani said, still drawing. And I've read the journals. The ones Yasna would give her anyway, storming woman. Then why do you need my depiction of it? Rushu asked. We're looking for something else, Navani said, glancing at Dalinar, then shielding her watering eyes. She blinked, then waved for Rushu to follow her, to withdraw back to the nearby command post. There's some place beyond Shadesmar, a place where Dalinar gets this power. Once, long ago, the tower was maintained by a bondsmith, like my husband, and from what the Spren have said, I conclude that the tower got its power from that place beyond Shadesmar as well. You're still worrying about that brightness? Rushu pursed her lips. It's not your fault we haven't decoded the tower's secrets. It's a puzzle one woman or an army of women can't be expected to unlock after only a year. Navani winced. Was she truly that transparent? This is about more than the tower, Rushu, Navani said. Everyone is praising the effectiveness of this ship. Bright Lord Kamakal is imagining entire fleets of airships blotting out the sun. Dalinar speaks of moving tens of thousands of troops in an assault on Kulinar. I don't think either of them realistically understands how much work goes into keeping this one ship in the air. Hundreds of laborers in Urethiru turning winches to raise and lower the ship, Rushu said with a nod. Dozens of chulls used to move it laterally, thousands of fabrials to facilitate both all needing to be perpetually reinfused, careful synchronization via a half-dozen span reads to coordinate maneuvers. Yes, it is highly improbable we could field more than two or three of these vessels. Unless, Navani said, stabbing her finger at her notes, we discover how the ancients made the tower work. If we knew that secret, Rushu, we would not only be able to restore your Ethiru, we might be able to power these airships. We might be able to create fabrials beyond what anyone has ever imagined. Rushu cocked her head. Neat, she said. I'll write down my thoughts. That's all? Just neat? I like big ideas, brightness. Keeps my job from getting boring. She glanced to the side. But I still think it's odd how many windrunners are standing around. Rushu, Navani said, rubbing her forehead. Do try to focus. Well, I do try. I simply fail. 
Like that fellow over there? What's he doing? Not guarding the ship. Not helping with the refugees. Shouldn't he be fighting? He's probably a scout, Navani said. She followed Rushu's gaze past the edge of the ship, toward the fertile stone fields. Obviously, he... Navani trailed off as she picked out the man in question, standing atop a hill, distinctly separated from the battle. Navani could see why Rushu would think him a windrunner. He wore a uniform after the exact cut of Bridge Four. In fact, Rushu, who paid attention to the oddest things, but never seemed to notice important details, might have once seen this man in their ranks. He'd often been at Kaladin's side during the early months of Bridge Four's transition into Dalinar's army. Rushu missed the fact that this man's uniform was black, that he wore no patch on his shoulder, that his narrow face and lean figure would mark him as a man interdicted, a traitor, Moash, the man who had killed Navani's son. He seemed to meet her eyes, despite the distance. He then burst alight with stormlight and dropped out of view behind the hill. Navani stood there, frozen with shock. Then she gasped, heat washing over her as if she'd suddenly stepped into burning sunlight. He was here. That murderer was here. She scrambled over to one of the windrunner squires on the deck. Go, she shouted at him, pointing. Warn the others. Moash, the traitor, is here. Kaladin again chased Leshwe through a chaotic battlefield. The flight gave him the chance to quickly survey how his soldiers were doing, and what he saw was encouraging. Many of them had pushed back their opponents. The bulk of the Heavenly Ones were hovering in a wide perimeter, pulling away from fights. Kaladin suspected they'd realized there was little to discover by looking at the outside of the ship. The Heavenly Ones, unsupported by ground troops or other fused, didn't seem to want to fully commit. Only a few contests continued— and Kaladin's was the most furious. Indeed, he had to turn his full attention to the chase, lest he lose Leshwe. Kaladin found himself grinning as he followed her through a wide loop, weaving and dodging around other combatants. When he'd begun training, he'd have thought maneuvers like this turn impossible. To perform the feat, he had to constantly dismiss and renew his lashings, each at a different angle in a loop, doing so without conscious thought, all while sculpting his motion with the rushing wind to avoid obstacles. He could now execute such a maneuver, if not easily, at least regularly. It left him wondering what else windrunners could do with enough training. Leshwe seemed to want to buzz past every other combatant on the battlefield, forcing Kaladin to constantly reorient. A test. She wanted to push him, see how good he truly was. Let me get close and I'll show you how good I am, he thought, cutting out of the loop and flying down to intercept her. That put him close enough to strike with his spear. She deflected, then darted to the side. He lashed himself after her, and the two of them shot through the air parallel to the ground, curling around one another while each tried to get in a hit. The wind was a huge factor tugging at his spear. At these speeds, it was like dueling in a high storm. They quickly left the town and the main battle. Kaladin had Sil reform as a sword, but Leshwe was prepared for his lunge. 
She slid her spear through her hands and gripped it near the head, then dove in and struck at his neck, throwing off his next attack. Kaladin took a slice on the neck, but not enough for her to siphon away his stormlight. He pulled away further, still flying parallel to her, the wind making his hair whip and twist. He didn't want to end up isolated, so he curved back toward the main battlefield. Leshwe followed. Apparently, she'd determined he could keep up with her and now wanted to spar. Their loop took them toward the manor, coming in from the north side. This land was so familiar to Kaladin. He'd played on these hills with Tien. He first touched a spear, well, a length of wood he pretended was a spear, right over there. Stay focused, he thought. This is a time for fighting, not reminiscing. Only, this wasn't some random battlefield off in the unclaimed hills. For the first time in his life, he knew the terrain, better than anyone else in this battle. He smiled, then came in close to Leshwe for a clash, slowing and nudging them to the east. He allowed a slice along his arm, then pulled away as if in shock. He shot toward the ground, leveling off and darting among the hills, Leshwe following. There, he thought, that one. He ducked around the side of a hill, pulling his water flask off his belt. Here, on the leeward side of the hill, the rock had been carved away into a cavern for storing equipment. And as it had always been when he was young, the door was slightly ajar and crusted over with the cocoons of lurgs, little creatures that spent days hiding inside their coverings, waiting for rain to wake them up. Kaladin sprayed water from his canteen across the door, then dropped the canteen and ducked around the next hill over, falling still near the ground. He heard Leshwe come in behind him. She slowed, evidenced by the sound of rustling cloth. She'd have found the discarded canteen. Kaladin peeked around and spotted her hovering between the hills, maybe two feet off the ground, her long clothing dragging on the stone. She slowly turned in a circle, trying to locate him. The lurgs started dropping from their cocoons, thinking rain had come. They began hopping around, causing the door to creak. Leshwe immediately spun and leveled her lance toward them. Kaladin launched toward her. She nearly reacted in time, but this close to the ground her long lance was a hindrance. Leshwe had to twist it around and grab it closer to the head before striking, which gave Kaladin the chance to ram a newly shortened sill spear toward her chest. He caught her in the shoulder, making her gasp in pain. She ducked his follow-up slash, but again had trouble maneuvering her lance as he slashed her in the leg. For a moment, the struggle was everything. Leshwe dropped her lance and pulled a short sword from her belt, then came in closer than Kaladin had expected, knocking aside his spear and trying to grab him by the arm. Her grayed flesh healed slowly enough that he was able to ram his shoulder into her wound, making her grunt. When she tried to slide the sword into his neck, he deflected it with a sill buckler that appeared on his arm. Leshwe fainted toward him to make him pull back, then snatched her lance and streaked toward the sky. Kaladin followed, his spear materializing before him, and was on her before she could pick up enough speed to dodge. She was forced to defend by sweeping his attacks away, growing more and more reckless. Until Kaladin saw his moment and made the sill spear vanish in his hands right as she blocked. Then, while Leshwe was reacting to the failed block, he stabbed forward, the spear forming as he did so, and slammed it straight into... Pain. Leshwe had brought her spear around to strike precisely as he did. Her weapon hit him in the shoulder, mirroring where he'd struck her opposite shoulder. He felt his stormlight draining away, leached into the spear. It felt as if his very soul was being drawn out. 
He held on, sucking in all the remaining light from the recharged spears in his pouches, then forced his spear deeper into her wound until tears leaked from the corners of her eyes. Leshwe smiled. He grinned back, a full-toothed grin, even while she was draining away his life. He yanked away almost at the same moment she did. She immediately put her free hand to the wound and Kaladin shivered. Frost crackled on his uniform as a great deal of stormlight rushed to fill the wound. That had cost him. He was dangerously low and Dalinar had taken another break from his perpendicularity. Leshwe eyed him as they hovered. Then Kaladin heard the screaming. He started, turning toward the sounds. People yelling for help? Yes, the city lord's manor was on fire, plumes of smoke rising through broken windows. What was going on? Kaladin had been so focused on his duel he hadn't seen. Keeping one eye on Leshwe, he scanned the region. Most of the people had made it to the ship, and the other windrunners were withdrawing. The edge dancers had already boarded, but there was a small group of people standing in front of the burning manor. One of them stood a good foot or two taller than the others, a hulking form of red and black with dangerous carapace and long hair the color of dried blood. The fused from earlier, the one that had become a red line of light. He had gathered the soldiers Kaladin had sent away. Several were accosting townspeople, slamming them to the ground, threatening them with weapons and causing them to scream in pain and panic. Kaladin felt a burning anger. This fused went after the civilians? He heard an angry-sounding hum beside him. Leshwe had drifted near, closer than he should have let her get, but she didn't strike. She watched the fused and his soldiers below, and the sound of her angry humming intensified. She looked to him, then nodded toward the fused and the unfortunate people. He understood the gesture immediately. Go. Stop him. Kaladin moved forward then paused and held up his spear before Leshwe. Then he dropped it. Though Syl vanished to mist almost immediately, he hoped Leshwe would understand. Indeed, she smiled. Then, her offhand still pressed to her wound, she held out her own spear and pointed the tip downward. A draw, the gesture seemed to say. She nodded again toward the manor. Kaladin needed no further encouragement. He shot toward the terrified people. Seven. The Rarest Vintage The two metals of primary significance are zinc and brass, which allow you to control expression strength Zinc wires touching the gemstone will cause the spren inside to be more strongly manifest, while brass will cause the spren to withdraw and its power to dim. Remember that a gemstone must be properly infused following the spren's capture. Drilled holes in the gemstone are ideal for proper use of the cage wires, so long as you don't crack the structure and risk releasing the spren. Lecture on Fabrial Mechanics, presented by Navani Colin, to the Coalition of Monarchs, Eurothiru, Yesevan, 1175. Vale stepped up to Iole Sadius. She'd heard of this woman's craftiness, her competence. Vale was therefore surprised to find the woman looking so weathered. 
Ela Sadius was a woman of moderate height. While she'd never been renowned as a great beauty, she seemed to have withered since Shalon had last seen her. Though she wore a dress of the sharpest and most recent fashion, embroidered along the sides, it seemed to hang on her like a cloak on a tavern's wall peg. Her cheeks were sunken and hollow, and she held an empty wine cup in her hand. So, you've finally come for me, she said. Vale hesitated. What did that mean? Strike now, Vale thought. Summon the blade. Burn those self-satisfied eyes out of her skull. But she wouldn't act on her will alone. They had a balance, an important one. The three never did what only one of them wanted, not in regard to a decision this important, and so she held back. Radiant didn't want to kill Iole. She was too honorable. But what of Shalon? Not yet, Shalon thought. Talk to her first. Find out what she knows. Therefore, Vale bowed, staying in character. My queen. Ela snapped her fingers, and the guard retreated with the last of the cultists, closing the door behind him. She wasn't the frightened type, Ela Sadius, though Vale did notice a door on the far wall of the room behind Ela as a potential exit. Ela sat back in her chair, letting Vale hold the bow. I do not intend to be queen, she eventually said. That is a lie that some of my more over-eager followers perpetuate. Who then do you support for the throne? Surely not the usurper Dalinar, or the niece he has appointed unlawfully. Ela watched Vale, who slowly stood from the bow. In the past, Ela said, I have supported the heir, Elokar's son, Gavilar's grandson, the rightful king. He is only a boy, not yet six. Then urgent action must be taken, Ela said, to rescue him from the clutches of his aunt and great-uncle, the rats who have deposed him. To support me is not to upset the lineage, but to work for a better, stable, and correct Alethi union. Clever. Under such a guise, Ela could pretend to be a humble patriot. But why did she look so haunted, a wreckage of her former self? She'd been hit hard by Sadius's death and the traitorous turn of Amaram's army. Had those events encouraged a downward spiral? Most importantly, who was the spy this woman had close to Dalinar? Ela stood up, letting her wine cup roll off the table and shatter on the floor. She walked past Vale to the nearby hutch and rolled up the front, revealing a dozen or more carafes of wine, each a different color. While Ela was surveying these, Vale held her hand to the side and began summoning her shard blade. Not to strike, but because Pattern was with Aderlin. The act of summoning should give Pattern an indication of her direction. She stopped almost immediately, preventing the sword from coalescing. Aderlin would want to come find her. Unfortunately, striking against Ela's fortress would be more dangerous 
than jumping a group of conspirators in the chasm. Dalinar had no authority here, and though the light-weaving Shallan had stuck to Adolin would keep him from being recognized, Vale wasn't certain he could risk moving in the open. Do you favor wines? Ela asked her. I'm not particularly thirsty, Brightness, Vale said. Join me anyway. Vale stepped up beside her, looking at the array of wines. This is quite a collection. Yes, Ela said, selecting one, a clear, probably a grain alcohol. Left uninfused, the color gave no indication of flavoring or potency. I requisition samples of the vintages that pass through the war camps. It is one of the few luxuries these heralds' forsaken stormlands can offer. She poured a small cup, and Vale could immediately tell she'd been wrong. It didn't have the sharp, immediately overpowering sensation of something like a horn-eater vintage. Instead, there was a fruity scent mixed with the faint stench of alcohol. Curious. Ela offered it to Vale first, who accepted the cup and took a drink. It tasted sharply sweet, like a dessert wine. How had they made it clear? Most fruit wines had natural coloring. No fear of poison? Ela asked. Why should I fear poison, Brightness? This was prepared for me, and there are many who would see me dead. Remaining in my proximity can be dangerous. Like the attack in the chasm earlier? It is not the first such strike, she said, though Vale knew of no others that Dalinar had ordered. Strange, how easily my enemies strike at me in quiet, dark chasms. Yet it has taken them so long to attack me in my chambers. She looked right at Vale. Damnation. She knew what Vale had come here to do. Ela drank deeply. What do you think of the wine? It was nice. That's all? Ela held up her cup, inspecting the last few drops. It's sweet, fermented from a fruit, not a grain. It reminds me of visits to Gavilar's wineries. I would guess it an Alethi vintage. Rescued before the kingdom fell, made from simberries. The flesh of the fruit is clear, and they took great care to remove the rinds, revealing what was truly inside. Yes, she did suspect. After a moment of decision, Shallan emerged. If it was to be wordplay, then she should be the one in control. Ela selected another carafe this time a pale orange. How is it, she said, that you have access to such important documents as Navani's schematics? She can be extremely secretive with her projects, not because she fears someone stealing them, but because she relishes a dramatic reveal. I cannot give away my sources, Shalon said. Surely you understand the importance of protecting the identities of those who serve you, she pretended to think. Though I can perhaps share a name, if I were to get one in return, someone you have close to the king. 
a way for both of us to have further access to the Colin inner circle. A little clumsy, Vale noted. You sure you want control right now? Ela smiled, then handed Shalon a small cup of the orange. She took it and found it bland and flavorless. Well, Ela asked, sipping her own cup. It is weak, Shalon said, powerless. Yet I taste a hint of something wrong, a touch of sourness, an annoyance that should be exterminated from the vintage. And yet, Ela said, it looks so good. A proper orange to be enjoyed by children and those who act like them. Perfect for people who want to maintain appearances before others. Then the sourness. That's what this vintage truly is, isn't it? Awful, no matter how it may appear. To what end? Shalon asked. What good does it do to package an inferior wine with such a fine label? It might fool some for a time, Ela said. Allow the winemaker to gain quick and easy ground over his competition. But he'll eventually be revealed as a fraud, and his creation will be discarded in favor of a truly strong or noble vintage. You make bold claims, Shalon said. One hopes the winemaker doesn't hear. He might be irate. Let him be. We both know what he is. As Ela moved to serve a third cup, Shalon began to summon her shard blade again, giving Pattern another hint to indicate her direction. Bring it all the way, Vale thought. Strike! Is this who we want to be with our powers? Radiant thought. If we start down this path, where will it lead us? Could they really serve Dalinar Colin by acting against his explicit orders? He didn't want this. He probably should, but he didn't. Ah, here, Ela said. Perfect, she held up a deep blue. This time she didn't offer it to Shalon first, but took a sip. A wonderful vintage, but the last of its kind. Every other bottle destroyed in a fire. After today, even this bit will be gone. You seem so resigned, Shalon said. The ELA Sadius I've heard about would scour entire kingdoms looking for another bottle of the vintage she so loves, never surrendering. That ELA wasn't nearly so tired, she said, her hand drooping, as if the weight of the cup of wine was somehow too great. I fought for so long, and now I'm alone. Sometimes it seems the very shadows work against me. Ela selected a carafe of horn-eater white. Shalon could smell it as soon as the top was off, and held it out. I believe this is yours. Invisible. Deadly. Shalon didn't take the drink. Get on with it, Ela said. You killed Thanadal when he tried to deal, so I can't try that. You hunted Vama and murdered him after he fled, and there's little chance of me surviving the same. I thought I might be safe if I hunkered down for a time, 
Yet here you are. Invisible. Deadly. Sweet wisdom of Bata. Shalan had been engaging in this entire conversation, assuming that ELA knew her for an operative of Dalinar. That wasn't the case at all. ELA saw her as an operative of Marais, of the ghost bloods. You killed Thanadol, Shalon said. Eole laughed. He told you that, did he? So they lie to their own? Marais hadn't specifically told her Eole had killed Thanadol, but he'd clearly implied it. Vale gritted her teeth, frustrated. She'd come here of her own volition. Yes, Marais was always hinting to her what he and the Ghostbloods wanted, but Vale did not serve him. She had undertaken this mission for the good of Alethkar and Adolin and... Go on, Eolay said. Do it. Vale thrust her hand to the side, summoning her shard blade. Eolay dropped the carafe of Horneater White, jumping despite herself. Though fear spren boiled up from the ground, Eolay merely closed her eyes. Oh, a perky voice said in Vale's mind. We were almost here anyway, Vale. What are we doing? Did they at least tell you why they decided we need to die? Eolay asked. Why they hated Gavilar, Amaram, me and Thanadol, once we knew the secrets? What is it about the Sons of Honor that frightens them? Vale hesitated. You found her, Pattern said in her mind. Do you have evidence like Dalinar wanted? They'll send you after Rastari's next, Eolay said. But they'll watch you. In case you rise high enough, learn enough to threaten them. Have you asked yourself what they want? What they expect to get? Out of the end of the world? Power, Vale said. Ah, nebulous power. No, it is more specific than that. Most of the Sons of Honor simply wanted their gods back. But Gavilar saw more. He saw entire worlds. Tell me more, Vale said. Shouts sounded outside the room. Vale glanced at the door in time to see a brilliant shard blade slice through the lock. Aderlin, wearing the false face she'd given him, kicked open the door a moment later. People flooded in around him, soldiers and five of Shallan's Lightweaver agents. Once I'm dead, Eli hissed. Don't let them search my rooms before you do. Look for the rarest vintage. It is. Exotic. Don't give me riddles, the three said. Give me answers. What are the ghost bloods trying to do? Eolé closed her eyes. Do it. Instead, the three dismissed her blade. I vote against killing her, Vale thought. Killing her would mean she had been manipulated by Marais. She hated that idea. You're not dying today, the three said. I have more questions for you. Eolay kept her eyes closed. I won't get to answer. They won't let me. Shalon emerged, calming her nerves as several soldiers rushed up to surround Eolay. 
Vale and Radiant settled back, both pleased at this outcome. They were their own person. They did not belong to Moray's. She shook her head and trotted over to Adolin, then dismissed his illusory face with a touch. She needed to see him as himself. Which one are you? he asked quietly, giving her a pouch of infused spheres. Shallan, she said, putting the pouch into her satchel, which a soldier had fetched for her from beside the wall. She glanced over her shoulder as the soldiers bound Iole, and again Shallan was struck by how deflated the woman looked. Adolin pulled Shallan close. Did she confess to you? She danced around it, Shallan said. But I think I can make a case to Dalinar that what she said constitutes treason. She wants to depose Yasna and put Elokar's son on the throne. Gavinar's way too young. And she'd be guiding him, Shallan said. Which is why she's a traitor. She wants the power. But Eli had spoken like that plan was in the past, as if she were now fighting only for survival. Had the ghost bloods truly killed High Princes Thanadol and Vama? Well, Adolin said, with her in custody, perhaps we can get her armies to stand down. We can't afford a war with our own right now. Ishna, Shalan called drawing the attention of one of her agents. The short Alethi woman hastened over. She'd been with Shalon for over a year now, and along with Vatha, leader of the deserters that Shalon had recruited, was one of those she trusted most. Yeah, brightness? Ishna asked. Take Vatha and Beryl. Go with those soldiers and make certain they don't let Ile speak to anyone. Gag her if you have to. She has a way of getting inside people's heads. Consider it done, Ishna said. You want to put the illusion on her first? The contingency plan for extraction was simple. They'd use light weaving to make themselves into House Sadius guards and ELA into someone lowborn. They'd march her out the gates with ease, capturing the High Princess right out from underneath the watchful eyes of her guards. Yes, Shalon said waving the soldiers to bring the woman over. Ele walked with her eyes closed, still maintaining her fatalistic air. Shallan took Ele by the arm, then breathed out and let the light weaving surround her, changing the woman to look like one of the sketches Shallan had done recently, a kitchen woman with rosy cheeks and a wide smile. Ele didn't deserve such a kindly face, nor did she deserve such a light treatment. Shallan felt an unexpected spike of disgust at touching Ile. This creature and her husband had plotted and executed a terrible plan to betray Dalinar. Even after the move to Eurothiru, Ile had worked to undermine him at every opportunity. If this woman had gotten her way, Adolin would have died before Shallan met him. And now they were just going to take her in to play more games? Shallan let go, hand going to her satchel. Radiant was the one who emerged, however. She grabbed Ile by her arm and towed her over to Adolin's soldiers, handing her off. Take her out with the others, Adolin said. You got the rest of the conspirators? Shallan asked, walking back to him. 
They tried to escape out the side doors we burst in, but I think we managed to round them all up. Ishna and the soldiers, Adolin's men, hand-picked from among his finest, led the disguised and bound Iole out the door. The High Princess sagged in their grip. Adolin watched her go, a frown on his lips. You're thinking, Shalon said, that we shouldn't have ever let her leave Eurythiru, that it'd be easier if we'd ended her and the threat she represented before it went this far. I'm thinking, Adolin said, that maybe we don't want to travel that road. Maybe we started already. Back when you... Adolin drew his lips to a line. I don't have any answers right now, he eventually said. I don't know if I ever did. But we should ransack this place quickly. Father might want more proof than your word, and it would be awfully helpful if we could present him with incriminating journals or letters. Shalan nodded, waving over Gaz and Red. She would have them search the place. And what of what Iole had said? Look for the rarest vintage. Shalon eyed the wines set out on the counter of the hutch. Why speak in riddles? Adolin and the others were coming in, Shalon thought. She didn't want them to understand. Storms. The woman had grown paranoid. But why trust Shalon? I won't get to answer. They won't let me. Adolin, she said. Something is wrong with this. With Ile. With me being here. With... She cut herself off as shouts sounded in the antechamber. Shalon scrambled out, feeling a sense of dread. She found Ile Sadius lying on the floor, foam coming from the mouth of her fake face. The soldiers watched with horror. The High Princess stared up with lifeless eyes. Dead. Kaladin flew through the smoke billowing up over the manor. He soared down toward where the townspeople were being threatened by the strange fused and his soldiers. That was Weber, the manor's gardener, being held against the ground with a boot to his face. This is obviously a trap, Syl said in Kaladin's mind. That fused knows exactly what to do in order to draw the attention of a windrunner. Attack innocence. She was right. Kaladin forced himself to drop carefully a short distance away. The fused had torn a hole in the wall around a side entrance of the manor. Though flames licked the upper floors of the structure, the room beyond the hole was dark, not yet afire. At least, not completely. As soon as Kaladin landed, the singers released Weber and the others, then retreated through the broken hole in the stone wall. Five soldiers, Kaladin noted, three with swords, two with spears. The fused carried one captive as he strode into the building. Then, with a gaunt face, the captive was bleeding from a slash along his stomach. Godeki the Edge Dancer. His stormlight had apparently run out. Storms said he was still alive. The fused wanted to use him as bait, so the chances seemed good. Kaladin strode toward the broken wall. You want to fight me, fused? Come on, let's have at it. The creature, shadowed inside the building, growled something in his own rhythmic language. One of the soldiers translated. I will fight you inside where you cannot fly away, little windrunner. Come, face me. I don't like this, Syl said. Agreed, Kaladin whispered. Be ready to go get help. 
He lashed himself upward slightly, enough to make him lighter on his feet, then inched into the burning building. This large room had once been the dining chamber, where Kaladin's father had eaten with Rashon and talked of thieves and compromises. The ceiling was burned in patches, the fire consuming it from above. Flamespren danced along the wood with a frantic delight. The hulking fused stood directly ahead, two soldiers at each side. They moved forward to flank Kaladin. Where was the fifth soldier? There, near an overturned table fiddling with something that glowed a deep violet black. Void light? Wait, was that a fabriel? The light dimmed suddenly. Kaladin's powers vanished. He felt it as a strange smothering sensation, as if something heavy had been placed on top of his mind. His full weight came upon him again, his lashing cancelled. Syl gasped, and her spear puffed away as she became a spren, and when Kaladin tried to resummon his blade, nothing happened. Immediately Kaladin stepped backward to try to escape the range of the strange fabril, but the soldiers quickly rushed to surround him, cutting off his retreat. Kaladin's assumption that he could beat them easily had relied on his shard spear and his powers. Storms. Kaladin strained to create a lashing. Stormlight still raged inside him and kept him from needing to breathe the acrid smoke, but something was suppressing his other abilities. The fused laughed and spoke in a lethe. Regions, you rely too much on your powers. Without them, what are you? A peasant child with no real training in the art of warfare, or— Kaladin slammed himself against the soldier to his right. The sudden motion caused the singer to cry out and fall backward. Kaladin yanked the spear from the man's hand, then, in a fluid motion, whipped it into a two-handed lunge, impaling the second soldier. The two soldiers on his left recovered and leaped for him. Kaladin felt the wind encircle him as he spun between the two of them, catching one sword, aimed low, with the butt of his spear as he caught the second one, aimed high, right behind the spear's head. Metal met wood with a familiar thunk, and Kaladin finished his spin, throwing off both weapons. He gutted one man, then tripped him, sending him stumbling to the ground in front of his ally. These soldiers were trained well but hadn't seen much actual combat yet, as evidenced by how the remaining singer froze when he saw his friends dying. Kaladin kept moving, almost without thought, spearing the fourth soldier in the neck. There, Kaladin thought as the expected ribbon of red light came darting toward him. He will go for my back again. Kaladin dropped his spear, pulling a throwing knife off his belt and turned. He rammed the knife into the air right before the fused appeared, slamming the small blade into the creature's neck angled between two pieces of carapace. The fused let out an irk of shock and pain, his eyes wide. Fire made wood snap overhead and burning cinders dropped down as the enormous fused toppled forward like a felled tree, the floorboards shaking with the impact. Blessedly, no red ribbon of light rose from him this time. That's a relief, Sil said, landing on Kaladin's shoulder. I guess if you catch him before he teleports, you really can kill him. At least until the Everstorm rebirths him, Kaladin said, checking the singers he'd killed. Other than the one dying slowly from the gut wound, he'd left only two alive. The one he'd shoved and the fifth one, across the room, who had activated the fabriel. The former had scrambled out the gaping hole in the wall to escape. The latter had left the fabriel and was inching to the side, his sword out, eyes wide. The man was trying to reach Godeki, perhaps to use him as a hostage. In the fray, the wounded edge dancer had fallen to the ground beside the husk after the fused had teleported to Kaladin. Godeki was now moving, but not under his own power. 
A small, gangly figure had the edge dancer by one leg and was slowly dragging him away from the fight. Kaladin hadn't seen Lyft sneak into the room, but then again, she often showed up where one did not expect her. Take him out the hole, Lyft, Kaladin said, stepping toward the last singer. Are your powers suppressed too? Yeah, she said. What'd they do to us? I'm extremely curious about this too, Sil said, zipping over to the device on the floor, a gemstone covered in metal pieces and resting on tripod legs. That is a very strange fabrio. Kaladin pointed his spear at the last singer who, hesitantly, dropped his sword and raised his hands. He had a jagged skin pattern of red and black. What is that fabrio? Kaladin asked. I, I, the soldier swallowed. I don't know. I was told to twist the gemstone at the base to activate it. That's void light powering it, Sil said. I've never seen anything like it. Kaladin glanced at the smoke pooling on the ceiling. Lift, he said. On it, she said, scrambling over to the device while Kaladin kept the soldier guarded. A moment later, Kaladin's powers returned. He sighed in relief, though that made Stormlight puff before him. Nearby, Godeki gasped, unconsciously breathing in Stormlight, and his wound started to heal. Strengthened by the light, Kaladin grabbed the soldier and lifted him up, infusing him enough to make him hang in the air. I told you to leave the city, Kaladin growled softly. I'm memorizing your face, your pattern, your stench. If I see you again, ever, I will send you hurtling upward with so much stormlight that you will have a long, long time to think during the fall back down. Understood? The singer nodded, humming a conciliatory sound. Kaladin shoved him, recovering his stormlight and making the man fall to the ground. He scrambled away out the hole. There was another human in here, Lyft said. An old light-eyed man in beggar's clothing. I was watching him from outside the building and saw the man come in here with Godeki. A short time later, that fuse broke through the wall carrying Godeki. But I didn't spot the other man. Roshon. The former city lord had told Dalinar he was going to search the manor's storm cellar to free imprisoned townspeople. Though he wasn't proud of it, Kaladin hesitated. But when Sil looked at him, he gritted his teeth and nodded. So long as it is right, he thought. I'll find him, Kaladin said. Make sure Godeki recovers, then get that Fabriel to brightness Navani. She's going to find it very interesting. Shalon removed the illusion, revealing Ile's face, spittle dripping from her lips. One of Adolin's men checked her pulse, confirming it. She was dead. Damnation, Adolin said, standing helpless above the body. What happened? We didn't do this, Vale thought. We decided not to kill her, right? I... Shalon's mind began to fuzz, everything feeling blurry. Had she done this? She'd wanted to, but she hadn't, had she? She was... was more in control than that. I didn't do it, Shalon thought. She was reasonably certain. So what happened? Radiant asked. She must have taken poison, said Vatha, leaning down. Blackbane. Even after many months as Shalon's squire and then agent, 
The former deserter didn't look like he belonged with Adolin's soldiers. Vatha was too rough. Not sloppy, but unlike Adolin's men, he didn't care much for the spit and polish. He showed his disdain by leaving his jacket undone, his hair messy. I've seen someone die like that before, Brightness, he explained. Back in Sadius's army, an officer was smuggling and selling supplies. When he finally got found out, he poisoned himself rather than be taken. I didn't see her do it, Ishna said, sheepish. I'm sorry. Nails nuts muttered one of Adolin's soldiers. This is going to look bad, isn't it? This is exactly what the Blackthorn didn't want. Another Sadius corpse on her hands. Adolin drew in a long, deep breath. We have enough evidence to have seen her hanged. My father will simply have to accept that. We'll bring troops to the war camps to make certain her soldiers don't get rowdy. Storms. This mess should have been cleaned up months ago. He pointed at several soldiers. Check the other conspirators for poison and gag them all. Shalon will disguise the body like a rug or something so we can get it out. Gen and Natum, search ELA's things in the next room to see if you can find any useful evidence. No, Shalon said. Adolin froze, glancing at her. I'll search through ELA's things in the next room. I know what to watch for, and your soldiers don't. You handle the captives and search the rest of the building. Good idea, Adolin said. He rubbed his brow, but then, perhaps seeing the little anxiety spren that appeared near her, like a twisting black cross, smiled. Don't worry. Every mission has a few hitches. She nodded, more to put him at ease than to indicate her real feelings. As the soldiers moved to follow his orders, she knelt by Ela's body. Ishna joined her. Brightness? Do you need something? She didn't eat poison, did she? Shalon asked softly. Can't be certain, Ishna said. I know a little about Blackbane, though, she blushed. Well, I know a lot. My gang would use it on rivals. It's tough to make, because you need to dry the leaves out, then make a gum out of them to get it to full potency. Anyway, eating it isn't the best. If you can get it into the blood, though, it kills quickly. She trailed off, frowning, perhaps realizing, as Shalon had, that Ile had died very quickly. Shalon knew of Blackbane herself. She'd studied up on poisons recently. Would I be able to spot a pinprick? Shalon thought, kneeling beside the corpse. Either way, she suspected Ile had been right. The ghost bloods hadn't trusted Shalon to kill her, and they'd sent a second knife to see the job done. That would mean they had an operative among Adolin's guards, or Shalon's own agents. The idea made Shalon's stomach twist. And this person was separate from the spy ELA supposedly had among Dalinar's elite? Storms! It was tying Shalon's mind in knots. Look the body over, Shalon whispered to Ishna. See if you can find evidence if this was self-inflicted or if someone else killed her. Yes, Brightness. 
Shalon quickly walked back into the room with the wine hutch. Gaz and Red were already working to gather Ile's things. Storms. Could she trust these two? In any case, Ile's prediction had proven correct. And it was possible that this room held secrets Marais didn't want Shalon to find.